I'm going to take you to Athens um, this morning. We'll begin by going to verse 1 of chapter 17. We'll make our way up to our text. And um, in this chapter, we'll continue with Paul on his second missionary journey. In chapter 16, we were with him when he crossed over into Europe, a memorable, significant, revolutionary crossing. Because it brought the gospel to the ancestors of many of us who are by no means a superior people. Actually, God has chosen the weak things of the world just to let the world know that uh, it is all because of his sovereign grace and not because of our merit. We thank him for sending the gospel over into Europe. We went with Paul first to Philippi. There, he received some rough treatment, as we studied last week. Yet, a little church came into existence in that town. When we study the epistle to that church of Philippi, we will find that it was closer to the Apostle Paul than any other church or any other group of believers. Now he continues on his journey. I hope you will follow this on the map. You will notice that he goes to Thessalonica and Berea. Berea is in the upper left-hand corner there. Still traveling westward into Macedonia, then south to Athens, Um, Thessalonica will be his next significant stop for missionary activity. So on the screen, on the map here, we have Paul's second missionary journey, and uh, we're in the city of Thessalonica. And I find uh, this city uh, has a lot of important things, because he was only there for a short period of time. And uh, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, let's go to verse one of chapter 17. Now when they had passed through Philippus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica uh, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And that was his custom, that he would uh, go to the synagogue. Um, in verses two through four, Paul will follow his usual custom of first preaching in the synagogue. He was there for only three Sabbaths, which means that he could not have been there longer than a month. In that limited period of time, he did his missionary work. Believers came to Christ. The local church was organized and Paul taught them. In that brief time he taught them all the great doctrines of scripture including the doctrine of the rapture of the church which when we get to Thessalonians remember 1 Thessalonians 4 and then again uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 the last days and then 2 Thessalonians talking about the antichrist what these are baby Christians three weeks old let's read verses 2 through 4 Then Paul, as his custom was, went with them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. 
And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few leading women, that means there was a lot of them, uh, joined Paul and Silas. Now let's just think about this. We're talking about three-week-old Christians. I mean, that's about as young as you can get. And what does he do? Well, it makes this point to me because sometimes you'll hear things like, um, you know, you don't want to get into the deep things like the rapture and the Antichrist and the tribulation and um, uh, the temple being rebuilt. All that's in First and Second Thessalonians. And he was teaching them, it says, every major doctrine. So he accomplished this in less than a month. What's your point, Dwight? That we should be the same way. We should never think, well, we can't take them there. Let's just get them started in John and tell them to make their way through the New Testament. No, get their curiosity. The thing that really got my curiosity of, as a new believer is I read The Late Great Planet Earth in 1970. And I thought, this stuff's in the Bible. Uh, God telling things that are gonna happen before they happen. And most of Revelation really is literal and is mostly about Israel. Well, these were all revelations to me, but what it did is it drew me in. And I had more of an interest because it wasn't what I thought the Bible was all about. Yes, there are all the doctrinal um, statements, but he taught those too. What impresses me is he did it in three Sabbaths, (laughs) all within that period of time. So my point is, don't ever think baby Christians should not hear or be taught Bible prophecy. Just the contrary. The rapture, these believers were only three weeks old in the Lord. Now verses five through nine, but the Jews who were not persuaded and that's always the case when the gospel's presented. You'll have people whose hearts will be open to it and they can't get enough and there will be others who are not persuaded and will go exactly the opposite direction and become troublemakers. They became envious and took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob, set all the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city crying out, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Oh, would be to God we could say that. We turn the world upside down because of, of the gospel. They've, now they've shown up here. Verse seven, Jason had harbored them and these and all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. So this here is a Roman colony and they were operating according to Caesar's guidelines, laws and rules as a Roman colony. Saying that there's another king, Jesus. Well, no, there's only Caesar. So this was the crux of their argument. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. 
Now this idea of taking security is just another way of saying uh, they, Jason had to make bond. That's what's going on here. So taking security, uh, Roman uh, colony, um, Jason had to get out on bail or on bond. All right, that's the beginning of uh, uh, Paul's uh, second uh, um, missionary journey here, continuing on from 16. It brings us to our text where Paul read for us earlier. Um, Let's read verses 10 through 15. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Again, I want to draw your attention to the map. It's up in the upper left-hand corner, Berea, and then you can see Thessalonica right underneath it, and we're on our way to Athens, so that's, um, the, the map is helpful in this way. So they went at night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether or not these things were so. Now, let me just stop here, and you've heard this many times, that I'll say, well, it's clear here what the scripture is saying. But then there's times I'll, I'll say, um, there's different trains of thoughts on a subject. And I'll give you my perspective. And then what do I say? Be a Berean. Check it out for yourself and see what you come up with. So actually what Paul is saying here, uh, we're not supposed to be a respecter of people, and I don't really think he is, but I do believe, um, as we've said it many times from this pulpit, be a Berean. Check it out for yourself. Um, that's the final authority. When you can get down, and let me, let me just give you an example of the scriptures, when they search the scriptures as the final authority. We went through this last week. Let's turn back to Acts 15 and remember the first big debate. There were certain Jews who came. They were upset because they wanted these Gentiles that were getting saved to be circumcised. And they were saying, unless they're circumcised, they're not even saved. So this was big to do so they had their first uh, main meeting to discuss what should we do should a Gentile be circumcised or not so they go Peter first one in verse 6 of 15 is the first one to speak on the matter so um, he basically recounts the story of Cornelius, the first Gentile ever saved. And we went through it in quite a bit of detail on Wednesday, so I'm not going to go through it again. But if you want to go back and read Cornelius' conversion, in the middle of the Bible study, uh, when Peter talked about forgiveness of sins, and that's what Jesus came for, 
the Holy Spirit immediately fell on them and they were all saved. You can't have the Holy Spirit falling upon you unless you're saved. Can I get an amen on that? Not only saved, but not only upon them, but in them. No sinner's prayer, no baptism. Peter's Bible study was interrupted and everybody there got saved. That's what he's saying here in verse six. So now they got all the leaders in Jerusalem gathering together to hear and Peter's the first one to get up and say, well, let me tell you what happened to me and Cornelius. Well, when he's done in verse 12, we have Paul and Barnabas now getting up and he declared, he mul- uh, then the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declare how many miracles and wonders had worked through them among the Gentiles. On Wednesday, I made this point that after they had become silent, it was James who stood up. And uh, the point that I want to make here is um, remember after they killed Stephen, that it says they also killed James, right? That was the brother of John. James and John, fishermen from um, the Sea of Galilee. This is a different James. This James is the writer of the book of James, who is a half-brother of Jesus. And they have gathered together all the apostles, all the church leaders, to discuss this, what should we do? What I want to point out here, when all was said and done, it was James that got up and said, um, Simon has declared how God at his first visit with the Gentiles to take them out. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. How do you come to a final conclusion when there's a debate going on? Should they be circumcised? Or shouldn't they be circumcised? What does James do? He goes to the scriptures. What he's quoting here in verse 16, he says, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Notice, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. End of discussion. Point made. James got up as the one who got up and said, you don't want my opinion. You don't want any of our opinions. What does God's word have to say on this issue? This is what it has to say. Even the Gentiles. Mention anything about circumcision? Nope. And so he goes on where he says in verse 19, therefore I judge. And um, uh, there's different groups that are out there today that um, um, have different forms of leadership. Some don't believe even in having pastors or senior pastors. Because of this verse right here, In verse 19, James says, therefore I judge. He doesn't say we judge. It doesn't mean he didn't talk it over with everybody. I think he probably did. But when it came time to make a final call on what was to be done, it was James. I judge that we should not trouble them among the Gentiles who have turned away. And then he just gives a couple things that a born-again Christian would never do. Like, committing fornication. 
and that's written here uh, from sexual immorality. One of the things that really doesn't pertain to us is um, buying um, polluted meat. What does that mean? It means that that hamburger, um, before it was made in a hamburger, was offered to an idol. And that would stumble some people. You're eating hamburger? You're eating a quarter pounder with cheese that was offered to Zeus? You know? <laughs> and, you know, the Bible says if it's going to offend somebody, don't do it. And uh, so that's why that's in there. Uh, we, as far as I know, McDonald's does not offer their quarter pounders and cheese to idols, as far as I know. <laughs> so, but my point is, it's just common sense things that when you're born again, you don't do. And on Wednesday night, I mentioned to you the first thing that went for me was my foul language. I just couldn't, just couldn't do it. I'd get immediately convicted. And uh, so that was one of the first things that went. And as you grow more and more things, you go, well, that's not cool. I can't do that as a Christian. Um, so I'm going to leave that with that. They write a letter. So verses 22 to 29, they get together and um, they sent it to the Gentiles, and they say, look, you guys are free. Um, you're not to be under the law of circumcision or any of the laws that are, the Jews would put themselves under. And the result of that, verse 30, when they read it, 31, they rejoiced over the encouragement. And um, I go there, let's go back to our text, And when they came to uh, Berea last Wednesday, the debate that settled this question was the word of God itself. And that should always be the case. Not your opinion. Well, I feel this way. Well, I feel this way. Well, so what? (laughs) What does the word have to say about it? Well, it's real clear here. The gospel is going to go to the Gentiles too. End of discussion. End of issue. Now, in verse 11, he says that the Bereans were more fair-minded than the Thessalonians. Paul is saying some Christians get it more than others. This is left up for speculation why he means fair-minded. He defines it by saying they listened to what he had to say, but then they took their own Bibles and they checked it out for themselves. And that's where we get the terminology of being a Berean, and thus the title for my message this morning, being a Berean. Yes, we hear what's being taught, but now you guys do your own homework. Make sure that it lines up with what's coming from the pulpit or on the radio or other teachers? Are these things lining up with scripture? Um, Paul is making this distinction here. Um, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter two and look at, of course, this is the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people were saved. And we have a model of how the first church was set up. It's based around four things in verse 42. 
So these are all the believers from all over. If you were Jewish, you were there for uh, the Feast of Pentecost. And what they did in verse 42 is they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Okay, what did Paul teach the Thessalonians? All the major doctrines. And so I would say Bible study, all of it. Not just the New Testament, but all the way from Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing, and see how it fits together. And then it says, and fellowship, well, we all like doing that. And in breaking of bread, this is uh, something that um, the Lord asks us to do because it's the main thing. Jesus Christ dying on Calvary's cross and remembering that event we commemorate by having communion. And um, it is a remembrance. It is not magically turned into the literal body and blood of Christ. Just like being Jewish, drinking blood, okay? I follow my track here if you know anything about Judaism. So what we have here is the model. And um, from this model, over the last 2,000 years, many have wandered looking for some new thing. Can't we spice it up just a little bit more? There's Bible studies all the time. This is in my notes and I get myself in trouble when I do this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. <laughs> in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel traveled out of Egypt to the promised land for 40 years, he had to feed 2,000 people every single day. So the Lord provided manna. And every morning they got up, and at night, manna um, tasted like honey and a little wafer. Um, they would go out and gather it. If you like to eat a lot, you can pick as much as you want to. If you're a small eater, you just picked up a little. But the deal was, it was only good for one day. Because by the end of the day, it would rot and grow worms. So the point is that for 40 years, they ate nothing but manna, and they had to eat it on a daily basis. Now Jesus said that he was a bread that came down from heaven. First Corinthians 10.4, if you're taking notes, well, how do you water two million people? Well, it tells us that the rock that Moses struck produced water. And for 40 years, whenever they needed water, that's how it was provided. For 40 years, what they ate was manna. The same thing. Manna in the morning, manna in the evening, manna supper time. Please ask me to stop, stop singing or I might tell you of other things like manicotti and manicotti and cheese and all right I'll stop okay so you get the point that um, can't we spice things up a little bit that's what they actually said we're sick of this manna I remember when we were back in Egypt man we had leeks and melons and onions and spices spice it up no that's not what God gave them what did he give us the apostles doctrine 
in the word of God. It'll get you from point A to point B. And if you're not satisfied with that, then you're gonna look for things to spice it up a little bit. Can't we do something a little bit different than Bible studies? I mean, then you leave off one week and you keep going right on the next week. Yeah, we've been doing that for over 40 years. And um, I hope the Lord comes soon because I don't think I'm gonna make another 40 years. (laughs) My three score and 10 is officially in. (laughs) At this point, I would like to get a little sidetrack to inform you of churches that have gotten off track because of what I just said. The word of God isn't sufficient. It doesn't satisfy them. They want something a little bit more spicy. Many come to mind really hyping things up these days, and I'll get into them, like Bethel Church out in California, Hillsong, that's a three-ring circus. And um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're gonna have to be a Berean (laughs) and check it out for yourself. But rather than pick on other churches, let's pick on Calvary Chapel, okay? I'm gonna give you guys a a brief history lesson of a major split that took place in 1981. So it's 2021. This is 40 years ago. 40 years ago, a man named John Wimber came out of um, Fuller Theological Seminary. Was a Calvary Chapel pastor. I knew John, didn't know him well. But um, I would meet him at our pastor's conferences, which I have been going to since 1979. Well, um, we believe in all the gifts of the Spirit, and he found out that when he prayed for people, they actually got healed. And this became a big thing to John. And what he decided to do with his Calvary Chapel was to take the emphasis off the teaching of the word first and put it on signs and wonders. And he was changing the model that was set up in Acts chapter two by doing this. Now at this time, he persuaded other Calvary Chapel pastors to go along with him. And it was actually starting something that what, it's not who we were. So what Chuck did is he wrote this letter. This letter is dated August 17th, 1981. And Chuck just takes the bull by the horn and he's, he lays it out. And I'm gonna read it to you. It's only a couple of paragraphs. It's been drawn to my attention that some of the pastors feel that I've been guilty of quenching the spirit of some of the Calvary chapels or their ministries. We want to assure you that we have no desire to quench the work of the Holy Spirit. I believe that the real power of the church is found in the Holy Spirit, working through the word of God in the lives of the believers in God. I do believe that if you have only the word of God working in the lives of the believers, that you're missing a very vital ingredient. I also feel that if you have the Holy Spirit working in the believer of God without the word, that you also are missing a very important ingredient. 
I feel that it's important that we recognize that Calvary chapels are not another Pentecostal church. If you desire to emphasize the experience, that was what Wilmer was wanting to do, if you desire to emphasize the experience aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit, it would probably be well if you seek an affiliation with Pentecostal churches, Assemblies of God, Foursquare, or Church of God, because they seem to have more experience-oriented type of ministry. Where I believe that Calvary Chapel has been basically established by God to fill in the broad gap between the Baptist and the Pentecostal churches. We have the Spirit of God working, but the real emphasis is on a solid foundation of the Word being the basis through which the Spirit works as he confirms the Word with signs following. But when you reverse the order where the experience and the sign become the primary thrust, then you're moving toward Pentecostal position. And you should seriously consider dropping the affiliation of your relationship with Calvary Chapel, especially dropping the name. Chuck's being tactful here, saying, out. (laughs) We pray for each of you that God will guide you in your ministries and will continue his blessing upon your churches and upon your walk and relationship with him. Uh, We so look forward to the opportunity of being with you who will be going to Israel with us the first part of December. I believe that God has some marvelous rich blessings in store for each of us. Um, And that was yours in him, Pastor Chuck. I've kept this for 40 years. And um, Paul Smith has called me twice because it's in one of his books and he keeps losing it. So he he keeps calling me because I know I still have a copy that was sent out um, during that period of time. So let me just tell you, having hindsight now of 40 years of what Chuck said, the next pastor's conference that uh, we attended Um, Chuck referred to the letter and then he said guys I've been around for a long time Pastor Chuck came out of a four square church which was more bent towards the Pentecostal type um, philosophy and he says if you follow this and you put the signs and wonders as a primary emphasis then let me tell you what's going to happen because he says I've been around for a while He says, what you're going to have to do, um, you're going to have to change it from signs and wonders because people will drift away from that and you're going to have to come up with something else to keep the people interested in. And it's going to have to be more dramatic than it was before. Now, he said that 40 years ago. Now it's 40 years later. And I'm here to tell you Pastor Chuck was spot on because I've seen what's happened. John Wimber is the founder of the vineyard movement. There's vineyards all over the world. And um, so this is the order that I remember it happening in. It went from signs and wonders. The next thing that was inner healing. Um, You need inner healing. 
Don, you need inner healing, you know? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and so that became a thing for a while. So all the vineyards were into inner healing. Well, then it was casting out demons, even Christians. They were casting out the demon of nicotine. <laughs> nicotine is not a demon, okay? It's the lust of the flesh. But that's what was going on. The joke was demon, demon, everybody's got a demon. What's your demon? I don't know. And, but that's what, as I remember, now looking back, Chuck said, this is what you're gonna be doing. That's exactly what was happening. He was getting crazier all the time. Um, John Wimber got quite a few Calvary Chapel pastors to follow him, and that's how the vineyard started. The one that made it into Canada in Toronto was called Holy Laughter. How many of you have heard of Holy Laughter? That's all part of the vineyard movement. And um, it's ridiculous if you ever see any footage of it, of it taking place. But the influence that it had, I was going to India on a yearly basis. What happens and starts here ends up in India. And what KP would have me doing, usually I would go and teach and teach him how to teach systematically through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But this time he says, Dwight, they came over here with this holy laughter thing and people being slain in the spirit. By the way, that was one of the next things after the holy laughter, being slain in the spirit. And I said, I want you to talk to the pastors because that's what I would do. I would travel the country. And... Um, up in Chandigarh in Punjabi Gloria are you here? Hi, hi Gloria she's from that neck of the woods <laughs> and uh, I taught Sunday morning and the pastor came up to me and he says you know I was down in Bangalore and uh, Benny Hinn was down there and everybody was laughing and then everybody was uh, falling down as he's laying hands on them and getting slain in the spirit. And he says, I came up here and I tried it and it's not working. What am I doing wrong? So my primary goal, as far as KP was concerned, I'm grieved to the core to tell you that they have gotten off track and we no longer support Gospel for Asia. And that's... That um, truly is sad. I was the one who introduced K.P. O'Hannon to Pastor Chuck. And we were the, I was the first Calvary Chapel pastor um, he ever met. He never met a pastor with long hair and a beard before. <laughs> and you see, the brothers in India have beards. So we connected, and we just became good friends. Five families from our fellowship put in 20 years of their life at Gospel for Asia. And so that's getting a little bit past the sidetrack. But let me just give you a scriptural reference. Okay, now it travels worldwide. Now let's talk about getting slain in the spirit. Let's be a Berean and search the scriptures. There's one place in the scripture where I see people getting slain in the spirit. You know where it was? When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, they said, where's Jesus? And Jesus said, I am and what happened? They got slain in the spirit. <laughs> but show me another one. You won't find it. 
So the only reference biblically of being slain in the spirit is what happened to those soldiers who thought, what, why did the Lord do that? He just wanted to show them who's in charge here. Okay? You think you're gonna take me? No, I'm doing this of my own free will. And I don't want anybody to think that you're forcing me to do this. So there's your example being slain in the spirit. From there, we can go on to the Kansas City prophets. John Wimber was a part of that. Uh, One of those guys came up here. He was doing hocus, his name was Bob Jones, visiting local churches. And uh, his thing was, put your hand next to my hand and I'll tell you things about yourself. And um, so I was asking some of the pastors that did this. I said, well, how did it go? They they said, (laughs) 50-50. In other words, it was just another thing to keep people from getting away from Acts 2, verse 42. That led to um, the prosperity teachers and uh, the Bible looking at life's Paul's life and Jesus' life and how the disciples lived is completely contrary um, to what the word of God has to say. And don't get me wrong, if God has blessed you and you're financially blessed with money, uh, but you see it as something, as a stewardship that the Lord has given to you. So don't get me wrong with that one. How many of you remember the Brownsville Revival down in Florida? Um, This goes back maybe 20 years, and it was particularly grievous to me because um, a very close friend of mine, probably the senior pastor, spent 25 years of his life building a solid church, retires. And they bring in a new guy from Michigan. He immediately takes him down to Brownsville. Why? Because he says, the fire is falling in Brownsville come down here and catch the fire, bring it back to your home church, and you'll have a revival. So this, I I met this guy one time, only one time, at a pastor's get-together. And after meeting him, I never said hi to him or talked to him. I said, hmm, I'll give him a year. Just because he was so arrogant that I just thought, this guy's, the ticker's already ticking. He takes all of his leadership, takes him to Brownsville, to catch the fire. And they came back, brought it into the church, well-grounded, solid as a rock, just a good church. If if I mention the pastor's name, um, uh, you would know who it is. I would say he was the most respected and um, pastor in the community at, at the time. I watched that solid foundation of a church destroyed in one year. That's all it took. One year, they advertised revival on radio. Every week, come the revival, the fire is falling, so on and so forth. It wasn't revival, it was an exodus. It was an exodus. What's your point, Dwight? I'm saying once you leave the foundation, when, when it talks about the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and of prayers, you know what I say to that? I can do that. I can do that over the long haul. I can handle eating manna, the word of God, till the Lord takes me home. I can fellowship with you guys until the Lord takes us home. I can have communion once a month to remember what the whole thing is all about. I can do that. 
all this other crazy stuff, I don't want any part of it. And yet, what happens is um, uh, you can flounder. Uh, The worst thing that has happened is that came out of it is we've left preaching the gospel and we've become more of a social-minded ministries. For example, um, Willow Creek. How did they grow? They went out and asked people, what do you want to see in a church? And that's what they did. They built what the people wanted around a church. Extremely successful. They host annual leadership conferences. They can sit 7,000 people in their auditorium. It only costs you 300 bucks to get in. And when you're in, people, um, I gravitated away from the ministerial fellowship maybe 15 years ago because all they were talking about was Willow Creek. And the speakers that were in for this leadership conference, which all the pastors were taking the leaders of the church down to, weren't even Christians. Did you hear me? They weren't even Christians. You know what they were? They were business leaders, or they were CEOs over major corporations. You see, it's a leadership meeting. What? We're told um, not to be persuaded by the, the, the slight trickness of hands of vain philosophies and false doctrines. And they, don't, they not had them there, but they had satellite churches, 190 of them all over the world. And so what happened is the church began to drift. Why? Because it got away from the foundation. And getting away from the foundation has led today to what we call the social gospel. Good Bible-believing organizations are more involved with helping people, not with preaching the gospel, but with social programs. And I'll give you an example. Everybody familiar here um, with the terminology of woke, W-O-K-E? I actually had to do a little research because I wasn't really sure myself. But Curtis Bauer mentioned on air and this is why I'm bringing it up this morning, that woke is making its way into the church. And I said, say what? So I better have him speak on that when he's here in a couple weeks. Um, Let me just read a paragraph of what uh, woke is. Woke is a, a fairly modern term that has come to mean conscious of injustice in society. A woke person is especially attentive to racial discrimination and the issues surrounding it. Although the word woke has been closely linked to the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, the term goes farther back than that. Matter of fact, all the way back to an essay in 1962 published in the New York Times called If You Woke, You Dig It by William Melvin Kelly. I don't know if it's a song or a writing. When it comes to being woke, Christians should keep these things in mind. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is no different than a a generous corporation that decides they wanna give um, 
food and clothing to some people in a third world country. It's social. It's distributing it fairly. But my friends, it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what's creeping in right now. I left off. Let's go back. I'm going to take you down to, let's go back to Acts chapter 17. And let's pick it up in verse 16. We're leaving now, and we're going to Athens. And I'm going to take you to Athens this morning. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also, stirred up the crowd, then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul uh, brought him to Athens, and receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him, with all speed they departed. Now verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in a synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to, to be there. Then certain Epicureans and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a claimer of some foreign gods because he preaches to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which is another name for Mars Hill. May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to uh, know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. Huh, isn't that what we just talked about with the churches? Human nature. Oh, let's see something new and something different. Let me tell you a little bit about Athens for background. As a capital city of the ancient Greek state, Athens dates to before 3000 BC. It has a long history of famous and successful military campaigns. Athens was a center of art, architecture, literature, politics, During the golden age of the Greeks, which was the fifth century, many famous philosophers, playwrights, and other artists lived in Athens during this time. The city is recognized even today as the birthplace of Western civilization and culture. Modern visitors to Athens are impressed by the city's ancient glory with the ruins of the Parthenon and several other massive buildings that were devoted to pagan worship. Um, In verse 19, if we go back to that, it says, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which is another way of saying um, uh, Mars Hill. Now, Uh, I said this morning I'm going to take you to Athens on one of our side trips to Israel. 
I can't remember, it's been quite a few years since we were there. We would do side trips. And this side trip was to Greece and Corinth. And um, we had a guide. We didn't have Zev with us. We had to have a, a Greek, and it happened to be a female. Her name was Helen. And Helen drove us crazy. Why did she drive us crazy? Because all she would talk about was their Greek gods. Nonstop. And we were just going, oh. So you know what we decided to do? We thought we'd change her name. We called her Myth Helen. (laughs) I think we got caught a couple times talking behind her back about Myth Helen. All that to say this, we couldn't wait to get to Mars Hill because it was one of the few places scheduled there where we could actually have a Bible study because Paul is going to preach the gospel um, on Mars Hill. This is what Mars Hill looks like. That's Mars Hill. And then what we couldn't wait for was a Bible study. So this is, a, this is an A spot, guys. And um, to be able to say that I stood where Paul stood, that plaque behind it, I'll show you another picture of it. That's Paul's message that he preached on Mars Hill. So all of our, what's the right word? Bummed out (laughs) from Myth Helen. We, we were able to have a Bible study on Mars Hill, a spot, this is where Paul did it. And we were standing right there. This is what I mean about going to Israel or these places. It makes the Bible come alive in such a ways that, that you can't even imagine. So that, that plaque right there is where Paul would have um, preached the gospel. Now the Parthian is, I'm gonna sh- show you a picture of what the Parthian looked like before Uh, during Paul's time. So here's a picture of the Parthenon. It is by far, it's way, way up on a hill. And inside the Parthenon uh, was the statue of Athena. And this is a picture of her. This is not, um, this is in Tennessee, I think, or some museum somewhere. So um, she is the goddess of weaving and sewing and uh, they have a god for everything. This is what the Parthenon looks like when we were there. Here's the next picture. That's what it looks like today. And um, next to this building, there's another one of the goddesses. They all, all kinds of them. This would have been very, very close to the Parthenon. Um, they're pillars that are carved out of, out of statues. And um, as far as the historical significance, it was amazing being able to visit there. Um, The last one I'll show you of Athens is the first Olympic Games took place in Athens in 1866. And this is where you have the Olympics. I think they're supposed to be in China this year. Is that right? Yeah. Well, this is the first one. But they were known for it 
before they were official games, long before 1866. Athens was, was the place that um, this was, was all about. We were only there for a couple nights. I was at an outdoor cafe having a cup of coffee. And I was just sitting there, and all of a sudden, it went, bam! And I go, what in the world? And all of a sudden, I'm just sitting there drinking my coffee, and all of a sudden, all these people are coming out of the building, standing in the middle of the street. And I go, I just experienced an earthquake. So I asked the guy, was that an earthquake? He says, that's an earthquake. And the only um, time I've had that opportunity um, it was a, just a real sharp jolt, and it was over. So those are my memories of um, being in Athens, and we also went on, on to Corinth. Um, let's pick it up in verse 22. We've already commented on that. Paul's speech to the court provides a model for communicating the gospel to a group that has no Bible background. This is important. He drew from the surroundings by mentioning the Athenians' love for religion. He didn't turn them off, but he says, hey, I see you guys love love religion. Verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, Mars Hill, said, men of Athens, I perceive in all things that you guys are really a religious group of people. That's very tactful on Paul's part. For I was passing through and I considered the object of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. He uses this as a launching point. And what I would, if you're taking uh, scriptures this morning, you might want to jot this one down. We are told as Christians to become all things to all people so that we might win them. Good place for an amen. amen. In other words, know who you're talking to. He talked to people never met before. Oh, I see you guys are a pretty religious bunch of people. You think that closed them up or opened them up? Opened them up. Oh, and I even noticed you got, I, I see you don't want to leave anybody out here with all the gods you worship, so you got one over here for an unknown god. And then he says, I'd like to tell you about this one. You think they wanted to listen? Yeah, he had them. Therefore, the one who you worship without knowing, I'm going to tell you all about him. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, like the Parthenon, nor is he worshiped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made one from one blood, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. And I like this, though he is not far from each one of us. To a non-believer, you know how far away God is? 18 inches. That's how far it is from here to here. And to believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the sinner on the cross, 
No sitter's prayer. It just went from here, Lord, remember me, to today you're gonna be with me in paradise. 18 inches. And he was saved. He had no good works. Now when we get to heaven, um, everybody's gonna be full of joy. Amen? And everybody's gonna have treasures. Some more than others. Consider the thief on a cross. How much treasure do you think he's going to have in heaven? Zip. (laughs) Right answer. You think the Apostle Paul might have a little bit more treasure than this guy? You get my point. But um, uh, still there will be fullness of joy uh, with all that are there. Goes on in verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's device. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Um, The main purpose for the sending of the Holy Spirit, the first thing it does is it cuts you to the heart and shows you that you're a sinner. In other words, when you hear the words that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, what the Holy Spirit does is cut your heart and lets you know, and you know you're one. You can do one or two things with it. You could ignore it, or you can respond in Acts 2 when they were cut to the heart. They said, what do we do? Repent. Be baptized and you'll be saved. So the first work of the Holy Spirit is to convict a person of their sin. So if you say you're not a sinner, um, you're in contradiction with the actual work of what we call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. How many have heard that term, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's one sin. It's the only sin that will never ever be forgiven. All manner of sin will be forgiven, but not this one, not in this life, and not in the life to come. What is that sin? It's when they're having the gospel clearly presented to them right here. And if they go on, and there will be some, we're gonna find out that will, some are gonna believe, and they're gonna be saved. Some are gonna blow it off, and they're not gonna be saved. So we go on to read the word repent. Verse 31. Because we have, He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained and has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Uh Uh-oh, people there didn't believe in the resurrection. So now we have a problem. When God judges, it will be right. Judgment will be through a judge who has nail-pierced hands, the one who has been raised from the dead, Paul always presents the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a declaration to all men. It is by this that God assures all men that there will be a judgment. Now verse 32. So when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, well, we'll hear you again on this matter. Remember, they don't have nothing else to do. (laughs) 
However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dion, us, the Aragopagite woman named Damaris, and others with them. Do you know why they mocked? Because Platonism denied the resurrection of the dead. That was one of the marks of being uh, Platonism, or how you pronounce the word. It denied the physical resurrection. When you hear people today talking about a spiritual resurrection, but denying the physical resurrection, you are hearing Platonic philosophy rather than scriptural teaching. Paul taught the physical resurrection from the dead, so when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, that's why some mocked. Close with this this morning. It's late. We need to be Bereans. Good place for an amen. Amen. It's a good place not to be afraid to name names. You'll be doing a person a favor even if they get mad at you. You're doing it because you love them. And if they think that by doing good works to a social gospel is gonna get them to heaven, the most loving thing you can tell them is it won't. Only the blood of Jesus Christ and only by accepting his provision for your sin will your sins be forgiven. Sin is the issue, and Jesus is the only one qualified to make the matter right. Why? Because he's the only one who never sinned. Don't think I've come to destroy the law. I haven't come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill it. What does that mean? Well, there's 613 laws, and I'm pretty sure I broke all 600 and at least 10. (laughs) Okay? So, Jesus said, don't think that I've come to destroy it. No, I've come to fulfill it. What do you mean, fulfill it? That means he lived a perfect life. He's the only one who could be the Passover lamb. And have he fulfilled, he was killed on Passover. That's no coincidence. Putting the blood on the lentils of the house. And the Lord said, when I see the blood, the firstborn of that house will not die, for I will pass over it thus pass over Jesus fulfilled that many people today think by going to a church like Willow Creek and I'll call it straight out the main pastor fell of sexual immorality and it's very popular a lot of people show up why Because the Bible says in the last days, people are gonna gravitate towards people who will tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear because they have itching ears. And the scriptures say this is what's gonna happen. But guys, you can't go there. Last week we talked about hell. I got a lot of comments about that Bible study. It shook some people up. And that was the main intent And so I'm gonna close with um, an exhortation. We have some of the finest Bible teachers in the country coming to our prophecy conference. Take a day off. Invite a friend, somebody you've been praying for. 
bring them to the stake and study and take advantage and be aware of the times that we're living in right now. And the Lord says, when I come, will I find faith on the earth? I don't see revival talk there. But whether or not we'll see this falling away. But there's still the Church of Philadelphia. What were they? Well, they were little in strength. They weren't a mega church. They were little in strength, but the Bible says they kept his word. And he says, because you've kept my word and have not denied my name, I'm gonna keep you from the hour of trial that's gonna come upon the entire world. What could that possibly be? It has to be the tribulation because it is the entire world. Well, how is he gonna keep us from being a part of that? Well, it's what Paul taught the Thessalonians, those baby Christians, the rapture of the church, because he has not appointed us to wrath. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning as we continue to follow Paul's missionary journey. Lord, what admiration we have for this zealot who persecuted the church so severely until you got his attention. Lord, um, strengthen us, give us boldness, help us never to be ashamed of just telling it like it is. Time will tell whether it's heaven or hell. Uh, Lord, with what we know, um, create doors of opportunity. I pray for anybody here who has never received you, that you would open their heart to your Holy Spirit and they would confess their sins personally to you and those watching online. And we thank you for the book of Acts and pray that you continue to go before our day. In Jesus' name, amen.